We're turning God's Word tonight to the Gospel according to John, uh, chapter 1. We're going to read the first 14 verses of the chapter, and the text will be the first three verses of the chapter. Just last week, I started a series on the Gospel according to John in my own congregation, and my intent with this is, first of all, that it's an Advent series leading up to our remembrance of the birth of Jesus Christ, but I plan to keep on preaching in this gospel account, at least through the first three or four uh, chapters uh, of the book. So I'll have some introductory uh, comments in the introduction of the sermon about um, the uniqueness uh, of this book, but my point in telling you that is that this is an Advent uh, sermon tonight, looking forward to our remembrance of the birth of Jesus Christ. So we read John 1, the first 14 verses. This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. text, as I said, is the first three verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There's a question that we face as we look at this text tonight, but it's also the question that is faced in the entire gospel according to John. It's this question, who is Jesus? That's the question that John is answering in this entire book. Who is Jesus? We know that not simply from a reading of the book so that after reading the book you would come to the conclusion, well, this must be what John is getting at. No, we know this because John himself tells us that, but he doesn't tell us in the beginning of the book. He tells us toward the end of the book. So if you look in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, there you have the stated purpose of John in writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We read in John 20, 30, and 31, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, 
which are not written in this book. But these are written that, and there's the word that tells us purpose, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So this is the purpose of John in writing the book, to teach us who Jesus is. But it's not simply that all by itself, as if he wants us to know the details of who Jesus is so that we can repeat them back to someone. But he tells us there that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's why this is so important. To know Jesus in truth, to know Jesus in our hearts, is to have everlasting life. To know Jesus and to believe in Jesus is of utmost importance. Those who don't know and believe in Jesus do not have life. They do not have life with God. They're under the wrath of God forever. So John is writing as someone who knew Jesus. He knew him personally. He'd listened to Jesus. He had seen Jesus face to face. And he's writing then to people who are not yet believers, Jews or Gentiles, Jews or Greeks. He's writing to them that they might believe and know that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And that shows the importance of the book for us, that we may know this same Jesus and who he is for the strengthening of our faith and that we might know in him that we have life. There are some unique characteristics to the gospel according to John. There are certain things that are omitted in this book when compared to the other gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called the synoptics. And they're called that because they look at the life and the ministry of Jesus from a very similar perspective. The gospel according to John is different. It looks at the ministry of Jesus from a very different perspective. And that's evident from the fact that there are certain things found in the other gospel accounts that are not found in this one. For example, you do not find in the gospel according to John, a account of Jesus' birth. And you do not read in this gospel account an account of Jesus' baptism. And you do not read here in the book of John of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And you don't read here a historical account of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And what's very interesting is in this entire gospel account, there are no parables of Jesus that are found. And it's for that reason that some have doubted that John was the one who wrote this book, and there are some who have said in the past that John shouldn't be in the canon of Scripture. But we, do not, we need not take our time looking at that tonight uh, because I don't believe those arguments are really even worth looking at. But there are things that are unique that are here and aren't found in the other gospel accounts. John is the only one who speaks of Jesus changing water into wine. He alone speaks of Nicodemus and his coming to Jesus at night. He alone speaks of the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well that Jesus purposely comes to to save her. 
He alone writes of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In the book of John, we have the seven I am statements of Jesus. How rich those statements are. And those aren't found in the other gospel accounts. Martin Luther, it's interesting to note what he said about this gospel account. I I meant to take the quote with me, but I, I forgot the paper I had at home with that quote on. But here's a summary of it. Martin Luther said that if all of the other New Testament books would have been stolen or taken away and only the gospel according to John and the book of Romans remained, that still the gospel would be saved. So John the ba- or I'm sorry, uh, Martin Luther saw the importance of this book of the Bible. So much so that if you read through the gospel according to John, you can find very clearly all of the five points of Calvinism. We we know them as the five points of Calvinism. Those five teachings from Scripture having to do with our salvation using the acronym TULIP. I know someone years ago who was a new Christian, new to Reformed faith, when she was studying the book of John, she took five different colored highlighters and went through the book of John, and one highlighter was for each of the five points of Calvinism and highlighted passages having to do with each of them. Interesting study if you would care to do that as well. But that shows the richness of this book. Now what's interesting as we look at this gospel account is this. Where did John begin? Think of Matthew. Where did he begin? Well, he began, he began with the genealogy of Jesus, his human nature. Luke, where did he begin? Well, he began with the history just a few months before the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. Where did Mark begin? Well, Mark, he pretty much just jumps right in to the earthly ministry of Jesus and sets before us all that Jesus was doing. Where does John begin? Well, he begins at the beginning. What do you mean the beginning? Well, the beginning of the world. He takes us back to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John reveals the one who is there, the Word. The Word. So he begins really with those two things. He takes us back to creation, and then he takes us to this name, Word. Tonight, we want to understand why Jesus is given this name word by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then understand as well all that is part of that. So that's what we look at tonight. Our theme tonight is the word or who is Jesus, the word. We notice first that he is the eternal word. Secondly, that he is the effective word. And thirdly, he is the equal word. We'll see that he is fully God. First, we want to start with the name. Word. Word. In the Greek, that word is logos. I only say that because maybe you've heard of that Greek word before, logos. That word has two ideas that are connected with it. It tells us words, first of all, give expression to the inner thoughts that we have and the things that are found in our souls. So 
Words give expression to what's found on the inside, in our minds and in our souls. And words then reveal those thoughts to others. Well, that's the very idea of the name word here. Jesus was sent by God to give expression to the inner thoughts of God himself and to reveal those thoughts to God's people. What we learn from this name word is that Jesus is God's living word to the church. He is the channel of communication from the Father to his people. Personally, he is the revelation of God. Or in other words, he's the spokesman of God. We know that the President of the United States has a person who is given that task to be his spokesman or spokeswoman. And so that when there are official times when the president wants to speak, but he doesn't want to get in front of the cameras himself, he sends this press secretary to face the media and get the word out about something, a spokesman. That's what Jesus is identified as here in the text, the spokesman of God. When John uses this word, word, or logos in the text, this is something that both Jews and the Greeks of that day would have been familiar with. The Jews would have been familiar with what John is saying because it would have taken them back to the Old Testament. Psalm 33, verse 6, which we sang a few moments ago, That reads, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. So when the Jews would hear that word, that would take them back to creation. and would take them back to Psalm 33 as well. That Old Testament idea is also expressed in Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. I think Prof Dykstra had a sermon on that here uh, last Sunday. And because of that, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't preach on this. But I think this supplements his sermon probably well. But in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past by the prophets and hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So that tells us again that the Son is the revelation of God to his people. And the Jews, they knew that. They knew that. This word logos would also have been familiar to the Greeks of that day because it was a word that was used often in the Greek philosophy of that day. And the philosophers of that day, they said that everything, including words and language, were in a state of chaos and a state of change. Everything is always changing. So John's writing about the word, to tell the Greeks of that day, no, there is a word that is and gives unchanging truth. In the midst of everything else that's changing, all the chaos of ideas of men, there is this unchanging truth. So when we put that all together, the idea is this, the God who knows all things, the God who is all-knowing, He is pleased to reveal himself to his people 
most fully through Jesus, who is the Word. That's not a new idea for us. It's something that we learn even in the Heidelberg Catechism. You remember that the name Christ is explained in Lord's Day 12. And part of the idea of that name Christ is that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. What does it mean that he is our chief prophet? Well, it means this. He was sent to reveal the secret counsel of, and will of God concerning our redemption and salvation. And if those words are familiar to you, they should be because they're right out of Lord's Day 12. And so when John uses the name word, he's saying this Jesus is the prophet of God to his people. But Jesus, when he reveals God, it's not simply that he reveals information about God so that you and I can recite the attributes of God and so on. It's more than that. What he reveals is the very heart of God toward his people, the, the attitude of God toward his people. And he does that more clearly than anyone else because he is the word. What that means for us is that if we want to know about our sin and we want to know about others' sin and we want to know about sin in this world, the one that we go to is the word. If we want to know about salvation, the one we go to is the word. If we want to know why there is suffering in this life, and what God accomplishes through suffering, we go to the Word. When we want to know how we're to, to respond to suffering and all the things that happen in this life, we go to the Word. We go to Him because there is no true knowledge apart from Him. He's the one who gives us knowledge and truth so that we can see things rightly in this world. If we don't have the Word and we don't see things rightly. And it's all according to our self-centered and our very proud perspective. So we need him who is the word. Now as we understand that name word, the question that we face is this. Well, why believe him? Why trust in him? Well, the text goes on to tell us, and John is telling us why we believe him, why we trust in him, why we listen to him. First of all, we do so because he is the eternal word. That's the idea in all three verses of the text. In verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What John is doing here in that very first verse of John is he's taking us back, as I said in the introduction, to Genesis 1, verse 1. Verse we're all familiar with. One of the first verses our children memorize. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now what John does is where we would expect here in John 1, verse 1, where we would expect the name God, he inserts the name Word. In the beginning was the Word. 
And he does that purposely. He does that to say that when God created all things, the word was there. He existed. And it wasn't because God created him first before he created this world. No, he existed because he is eternal. Before this world existed and before time existed, the word existed. Before the world was, the word was. So that no matter how far back you look, you will always find this one who is the Word, the Son of God. You don't simply find Him at creation, but you find Him before creation. He is the one who is eternal, having no beginning and no end. When the church fathers said this about Him, there never was when He was not. There never was when He was not. Now John 1 is not the only place in Scripture where we learn of this. About him. You find this also revealed in the Old Testament already in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs 8, we find wisdom personified. That means wisdom is spoken of as a person. And it's not just a a poetic way that Solomon is writing there. Wisdom is a person, and the person is the Son of God. And we know that because of what we read later in John 8, verses 27 through 30. We read there, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. I, the I there is wisdom. I was there. Christ is speaking. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth. When he established the clouds above. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment. When he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So Proverbs 8 is revealing already that this Christ, the Son of God, is eternal. And then in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, remember that he's called the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Meaning, Not is he just there at the beginning and the end, but he is beyond that. He has no beginning and he has no end. Why is it important to know this about the one who is the word that he is eternal? Well, what John was saying to those who are reading this at the time is this prophet, this prophet who came is not a new prophet. He's saying to the Greeks, this one who came is not the new philosopher on the block. He's not the new guy who comes along with all kinds of new ideas. But in fact, he's been around a long time. In fact, he's been around for all eternity. Just think about that from this perspective. If there's someone new who comes along, there's this new, exciting, charismatic preacher who comes along and he's teaching things that are new and exciting, and many people are flocking to hear him. The question would follow then, well, you're a young man, you're new at this, why should I believe you and listen to you? Well, now that comes with Jesus. Why believe him and listen to him? Well, because he's the eternal word. 
he has always existed. Even though he became flesh, he is the revelation of God. And in fact, that's what John is pointing out here in these words. Going back to creation itself, the word was there at the beginning and was there, the Son of God was there revealing the greatness and majesty of God when God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33, verse 6, which we read earlier, is not simply saying that the Word is the creative agent of God, used of God to create, but He did this to reveal God. He's been doing that from the very beginning. Because that's true. He is the prophet to be believed. There's no prophet, in fact, who has come before him. So we are to believe him. That's important for a couple of reasons, but one of them is this. We live in a day where there are all kinds of people writing, preaching, teaching, There are new ones that arise, and there are people that flock to hear them and to listen to what they say, and they maybe listen to them on sermon audio, or they listen to them on podcasts. And then people say, well, the things that this man says sound really good, but how do we know if they're true? Well, we go back to what the Word says, the Son of God in our flesh. But I believe that's also important in our day because of what's happening in the church. And it's not just in our own churches, it's in other denominations of churches as well. You have pastors that are falling into grievous sin. Men who have been trusted have fallen. And still others say, I'm going to be finished with the the ministry. I want to be done. Maybe they're burnt out or whatever it is. And in our day, we might become somewhat cynical, even skeptical about leaders within the church. But that's where we need to remember and understand there is a prophet who is to be believed. There is a prophet who is faithful. Men will always disappoint, but this one will not. He is the eternal word. And may all of that drive us to him who is the word. So that, first of all, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the eternal Word. Secondly, we notice from the text that He is the effective Word. He is the effective Word. That comes out in verse 1 and also verse 2. We read there, and the Word was with God. And then verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Two things that we learn from this. First of all, we see that the Word is distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Word is a distinct person in the Godhead. The Word is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And thus we are reminded of the beautiful truth of the Trinity That God is three in person and one in being. 
Now understand when John speaks here of the Word in distinction from the Father and the Holy Spirit, this is not some abstract metaphysical concept or idea. Metaphysical means an abstract idea of being or beginning. So John is not becoming philosophical here when he talks about the distinction of the Word. He's revealing something of utmost importance about the Word, that He is God. We'll look at that more fully in the third point. And that as God, He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And that's necessary to believe because of what He said in John 20, verse 31, and that believing ye might have life through His name. This is part of what you and I must believe. That the Word is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Begotten of the Father from all eternity. And that begetting is an eternal work of the Father. And that from this Son proceeds the Spirit to the Father. And from the Father to the Son proceeds this same Spirit. And this Son was incarnate for our salvation. He became flesh to reveal the Father to us. So that is the first idea that we must see here, that the Word is distinct from the Father and Holy Spirit. That's important for this second idea. Because when we read in the text, and the Word was with God, and the same was in the beginning with God, the, the idea of that with is toward So the, the idea of what John sets before us is of two people who are face-to-face looking at one another. And what the text is saying is that the word was toward God the Father. He, he was gazing upon his face. So those of you who are married, think of your wedding day. And that on your wedding day, when you said your vows to one another, you weren't looking at the pastor. But the pastor at that moment asked you to turn towards each other and look at each other face to face. And so you gazed into the eyes of your spouse. And in that moment, you took your vows before God in the joy and gladness of looking at the spouse that God had given to you. That's the idea here. The son was gazing upon the face of his Father. And he does that from all eternity. You you could picture them in such a stance that they never take their eyes off one another. It doesn't get any more intimate or closer than this. And the one who gazes upon the face of the Father is the Word the one who is the revelation of God to us. And this tells us why he is to be believed, why he is to be trusted. He's the one who has gazed upon the face of God and come back and revealed him to us. He reveals the face of God to us. An Old Testament way of understanding that is to remember Moses. Remember when he went up to Mount Sinai and... He had asked to see the glory of God. And God allowed 
Moses to catch a glimpse of his glory. And then when Moses came down from the mount, his face was shining. And the the people asked him, cover your face, because it was shining with the glory of God. That's the word. He's shining, as it were, with the glory of God. He's gazed upon the face of our God, and he's come to reveal the Father to us in a way that no one else can do. And this is what makes him the effective word, effective in revealing the Father, because he knows the Father like none other. There are two things that we learn from this. The first thing that we learn is that God in himself is full and complete. So again, this is not an abstract idea. As we consider those words, and the word was toward God, the word was toward God, we're let in here upon the fellowship that is enjoyed in the Holy Trinity, and we're reminded by that, That our God is full and complete in himself. Whenever we get too proud, whenever we get too big for our britches, whenever we think that we've got things figured out and we know everything that we need to know, we need to remember this. God's a God who's full and complete in himself and he doesn't need you and he doesn't need me And he doesn't need his church. He didn't save us because he needed us. He's full and complete in himself. But he saved us for the glory of his name. What all of this tells us then is that when we look then upon the face of God's son, as he is revealed in scripture, when we look upon his face with faith, then not only do we see Jesus and who he is, but then we see the God who he has come to reveal. And now remember what we said earlier. Not simply a bunch of facts about God that we know all of his attributes and can list them and define them. But even more than that, when we look upon the face of Jesus Christ, we see the heart of God. Don't you and I want to see the heart of God? When I say the heart of God, what I mean by that is we want to know what is the attitude of God toward us. And think about different times in your life when you may wonder about that. There's all of these sins that you see. And you know that God sees them and much more as well. What's the heart of God towards me? Or you're going through a season of suffering in your life and it may seem because of all of this suffering that God is against you and the sufferings pile up. Is God against me? That's what Asaph asked in those psalms of lament that he wrote. Has God forgotten his favor? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has God taken away his grace? Has he taken away his love? And so easy that easily that's the question that we face as well. What's the heart of God towards us? What's the attitude of God towards us? And part of the struggle is what we're looking at is we're looking at the wrong things. We're simply looking at the circumstances of our lives and making a judgment. 
Where do we need to look? The Word. The Word. Son of God become flesh. Why? Because when you see the Son of God become flesh, there you see the heart of God. Why did the Son, the Son of God who knew the glory of God, why did He become flesh and come to this earth? Because of the love of God for His people. And why did He go and suffer and die upon the cross? Because of the love of God for us. We see in the word the heart of God for his people. It was, it was ingrained in him. And, and that's brought out even later in the book of John. You think of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, where he lifts up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. We see in him what's most important, the glory of God. And as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So this is the heart of God, to give eternal life to those who are given to him. And thus he prays then that God would be glorified. I've glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So there's just a glimpse of the heart of God and why God does what he does. He saves his church to display his love for the glory of his name. Knowing that's true, this is why we trust in this one who is the word and this is why we trust in the God who sent him. And the question for you and me tonight is this, do we? And not just do we, but do we fully and completely rely on the word and rely upon our God? If you were to put a percentage to it, a percentage to it, 80%, 90%. Think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Solomon, when he wrote that, knew our tendency to trust in ourselves and lean on our own understanding, to only cry out to God when we get ourselves into the... Uh, worst of circumstances and in difficult circumstances, then we cry out, then we're at the end of ourselves. We're reminded by this word tonight to live the entirety of our lives in this way, trusting in God. That made me think of some of the team building things that maybe corporations do and, and teaching trust to people. And they may say to a person, now turn around and fall backwards and the person behind you is going to catch you. Maybe some young people have done that or said that to one of their friends. And then the young person says, I'm not doing that. I don't trust you. But when it comes to trusting God, we can trust him with everything. When we're struggling as parents, when we're struggling in our marriages, when we're struggling in the church, when we're struggling with the circumstances of life, when we struggle with what's going on in the world, when we struggle with what's going on nearby, with whatever it is, 
we're taught here by this name word and that he is effectual in what he does, that we are to trust in him and him alone. Not only then is he the effective word, but we also learn from the text that he is the equal word. That's what we have at the end of verse 1, and the word was God, or literally, God was the word. Now, you and I might look at that verse and say, now, why does John put it that way? He puts it in the past. He was the word. And when we think of past, we think of a a snapshot. We think of something that was true in the past. But what about right now? Well, the tense that is found here in the Greek is not snapshot, just true in the past. The idea of it is this. It's constant in the past and continues into the present. So that we could very really translate it this way. The word was and is God. What was true constantly in the past is true right now as well. The word was and is God. Now, we have assumed all along as we've heard the sermon tonight that the word is God. And we know that he is. We've seen that he is the second person of the Holy Trinity. But now we take notice of the fact that he is equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is fully and completely God. It's theology 101. It's doctrine of the Trinity 101. doesn't mean we comprehend everything of it, but we know God is one in being, and he is three in persons. What this means is that the Word possesses all of the attributes of God, and he has them fully. He is eternal like God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. So he is God, equal to the Father and the Spirit. Now again, as we come to that name word, what that tells us then is that the words of Jesus Christ, our Savior, are always the words of God. And the deeds of our Savior Jesus are always the deeds of God. So that when you go through the gospel according to John and you read of Jesus changing water into wine, it's the work of God. When he speaks in John 17, we hear the word of God. And there's so much in the book of John about what Jesus says. It's all the word of God. When he cleansed the temple and his enemies came to him and said, Who do you think you are? By by what authority did you do this? Well, the answer is, he's God. That's the authority by which he cleanses the temple. Again, because all of that is true, we believe in him. His word is the word of God. It's an authoritative word. It's a word that is to be obeyed. It's a word that is to be trusted. It is truth, and thus we believe what he says. And we do so because he is God. Beloved, see how beautiful that is tonight. Our God is a God who communicates with us in his love. What a God that he does this. 
He doesn't give us the cold shoulder. He doesn't close off communication. He doesn't stop communication with his people. Just think about how beautiful that is. Sometimes when we're struggling in a relationship, what do we do? Well, if we feel like our spouse isn't listening, we feel like our children aren't listening, we feel like our parents aren't listening, we feel like a friend's not listening, I'm done. I'm not going to talk anymore. Thankfully, our God does not do that with us. Think about how often we don't listen to him. And yet our God has given to us the word and he keeps speaking to us. This makes every word of our Savior so precious to us. His word is precious. Do you believe that? We live in a day where you can get all kinds of sermons, you can listen to all kinds of podcasts, you can read all kinds of articles, you can uh, read all kinds of blogs. But as I said earlier, the question is with all of those things, how do I know that some of these things are accurate? There are sermons that get spread around, and, and there are podcasts that get spread around as well. But beloved, there may be good things for us to listen to, and there are certainly good things for us to read. But in the end, we need to go back to the Word, the revelation of the Son of God our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here in the Holy Scriptures. We're familiar with the term fake news. We understand that there is much that is found in the world that is false. We understand that media cannot be trusted. In fact, maybe for you, you have the same question I do. Where do I find news that's going to be more accurate? Because we know that everybody has a bias. And we're always wondering, what is their bias? Well, in the midst of all that fake news and all that's false in the reporting of this world, there is truth. There is a word that is to be believed and trusted. It's the word of the living God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Are we listening? Are we in it? Are we obeying? That's the application of the name Word for us tonight. The Word who is eternal, the Word who is effectual, and the Word who is equal. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the one who has come as the Word of thee, our God. We are thankful for all that he reveals to us. But Father, we pray that thou wilt now work in us, that we would listen, that we would hear, that we would read that we would study, that we would know what truth is, and that we would live out of that truth as well, trusting in Thee and trusting in Thy Son, Jesus Christ, for everything that we need. So strengthen us to rely upon Thee and Thy Son. Bless us in this new week. Strengthen us for the callings that we have, that we may be diligent and faithful in them and live for the glory of Thy name and the glory of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. In His name do we pray. Amen.